Hi, welcome to Meshi. I'm Mizuki. I'm Kano. And I'm Stephanie. And this is our first episode ever. Yay. Yay. <laughs> I mean, Meshi didn't even start out as a podcast. It started out as a magazine that, that never took off. But I feel like this is good. Yeah, so we are all friends from high school. Uh, Miz and I are based in Tokyo and Steffi's in LA. And we are all Asian. <laughs> yep. I am Japanese. I'm also Japanese. And I'm Korean American. I should clarify, though, that I'm not like half white. I was just born in America. <laughs> Fully Korean. Yeah. None of us are white. There you go. <laughs> Even though I sound white. Yeah, we all we all sound white because we all went through the American education system. Heck yeah. <laughs> so anyway, we are here to talk about Asian culture or Asian American culture or Asian diaspora culture or anything Asian related. Meshi is a Japanese word that means rice or what does it mean food i thought it generally means like food but it can also mean like just a bowl of rice because you know like nikomeshi is rice plus like miso soup i didn't know that was a thing we fail <laughs> we are failed asians yeah you're hearing a podcast about asian culture by three people who know nothing about asia so <laughs> That's true. But I guess to help explain, the whole point was like, oh, it's like food for thought. <laughs> well, I think it is significant in that meshi is more like a casual way of saying food. Okay, yeah. I didn't even know that it was like super casual. You could say like meshiku, which is I'll eat food, but it's more like a dude way of saying it. If you're in a polite setting, you wouldn't say meshi. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. So we don't really want to talk about... A lot of topics that we feel are covered in Asian media or like Asian diaspora media. In general, we feel that this idea of, should we say, like representation in media has kind of, especially by people who have a lot of cultural or societal power, like us, we're, you know, three Asian people educated in Western schools. You know, recently we've had so many discussions in media which are mostly centered on seeing more Asians in Marvel movies, <laughs> um, which, I don't know, it's just not something that really interests me. Like, we want to talk about Asian diaspora and Asian culture, but maybe from a bit more of a nuanced perspective. Yeah, I think representation kind of, like, stops at a certain point. I don't know, the whole, like, Kamala Harris thing really ticked me off. You know how people were claiming her as, like, the first South Asian vice president, and it's like, okay, yes, that's a fact, but is it, like, I don't think it's something to be, like, celebrated. Like, we're seeing right now, like, Kamala being a South Asian person, did that do anything for, like, people in India with a vaccine and they couldn't get raw materials from the U.S.? I mean, representation only serves itself. Like, it, it is literally representing people in media or in other positions of power. But if it doesn't serve any purpose beyond that, the conversation just kind of ends there. Yeah. So it's not invalid to talk about representation, but it just feels like a very surface level conversation. It just stops. Yeah. I mean, I think we'll mostly be talking about culture, which is why I say mm. media. But in any facet of society, seeing people represented is maybe an okay first step, but doesn't ultimately lead to any liberatory politic. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I agree. Shall we, shall we get to the good stuff? 
Yeah, so I think because this is our first episode, I wanted to talk about something that like almost everyone knows. Um, so today we wanted to talk about Spirited Away by Hayao Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli. And I think I'm going to say Studio Ghibli and not Ghibli because in Japanese it's called Ghibli. <laughs> it's not Ghibli. Yeah, but it's like some people call it Ghibli because that's the right, that's the correct pronunciation of the word Ghibli. It's just like Miyazaki mispronounced what? it. And yeah, mis he Miyazaki mispronounced it as Ghibli and now the studio is called Studio Ghibli. Is that a word? But yeah, it's like a name of a person or something, I think. Oh, I didn't know that was a real thing. I thought that was just a made up word. It's like a person who made airplanes or like a model plane or something like that. Oh, of course yeah. it is. <laughs> yeah, of course well, it is. I didn't yeah. know that Ghibli was a word or that people pronounced it with a hard G. I think it's like an Italian word or something. Oh. But anyway, the Japanese pronunciation of the studio is Ghibli, but the correct pronunciation of the actual word is Ghibli. But I'm gonna say Ghibli because in Japanese, the studio is called Studio Ghibli. But yeah, we're talking about Spirited Away, which came out in 2001 in Japan. Did you watch it though when it like first came out? Uh, My aunt had a bunch of Ghibli DVDs so I'm pretty sure I saw it as a kid maybe not when it came out but when I was younger like I had Totoro on repeat when I was a kid and then I think later on I was upgraded to Howl's Moving Castle and Spirited Away which are probably like the most popular three here yeah I think so yeah. um I think I saw it first probably not when it first came out I think I might have been like 10 so a couple years after it came out what about you, Steffi? Um, I don't know when exactly when I watched it. I was like a kid, but upon my rewatch this time around, I realized that like it doesn't matter when I watched it because I did not understand it at all. Yeah. I watched it and I was like, oh, I totally missed the point. <laughs> no, me too. I've seen this movie many, many, many times and I think the reason one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about it was because Spirited Away is my personal favorite uh, Miyazaki movie. Because every time I had watched it, it always meant something different to me at different stages of my life. It meant something different. And then when I watched it last time, like a year ago, that kind of stopped for me because I finally, I think I finally understood what this movie is trying to say. Oh, great, because I don't. Oh, really? <laughs> it's hard. I mean, Miyazaki made this movie for like 10 year olds, but they definitely do not understand like enough of how the world works to like really understand what this movie is about I don't think also it was really scary I was gonna say I remember watching it and being like traumatized by the scene where her parents turn into pigs <laughs> that like really scared me yeah it's terrifying yeah I think watching it recently for this I still didn't get a good bit of it I mean I understand the plot now <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think some of the meaning still eludes me. Yeah, I think you can have different interpretations, obviously. But yeah, I want to know what you guys thought about what this movie is about. I cheated a little bit because I looked up Spirited Away on Reddit to see what people were saying. <laughs> um, what did they say on Reddit? Um, so I found this on our socialism and it was like... <laughs> <laughs> it was like spirit away <laughs> i don't even want to like give it any like platform <laughs> but it was basically like spirit away is about capitalism and like i like went into it with that mindset as i was watching i picked up a lot of things naturally 
And then reading that Reddit post kind of made me realize that like, oh, okay, this is like one of the main themes. It's like a known thing to the outside world. Yeah, that's that's where I'm going with this too. Like, I don't think Miyazaki is specifically commenting about capitalism. It turns out that way because that's the society that we live in and he's just responding to it. But yeah, so much of Spirited Away revolves around work and labor. That's the basic thing that she's doing or Chihiro is doing in the movie, right? And I think it's interesting because this is like one of the only Ghibli movies or Miyazaki movies that is centered around work. I think Kiki's Delivery Service does it a little bit, but it's not like the central thing because the the plot of Spirited Away is like she has to work to survive and she has to work to save her parents and which is not something that you would recognize as a child right you don't know about capitalism when you're a little kid oh but you understand working I mean what I found the most familiar when I was watching it when I was younger was that there's that scene where it's really brief but she uses the washcloth to wipe the floors down and I was like oh that's what I did in elementary school yeah so you recognize like those images but I don't think you recognize it in the way of like in this world that we live in like if you can't work like you're basically worthless because that's the same world that the the spiritual world is in I guess like what is the discourse around spirit away currently like what do people think the movie is about if not work yeah, um, so I was on like YouTube and some of the videos do get at this thing of like work and consumerism and capitalism, but most of the points are like about what mythical creature all the characters are based on. And so I think because most people are stuck in that conversation, it doesn't get to like the work part of it. You have to go to the socialism subreddit for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously it's hard to classify what sort of economic system this fictional world is in, but wouldn't it be something more akin to like mercantilism or merc is it mercantilism? How do you pronounce it? Mercantilism rather than capitalism? Oh yeah, but I, I had a professor in college that his take was like mercantilism is a not a part of but it's like capitalism light we we don't recognize it as capitalism but it's like um similar you know or like where it came out of yeah yeah i mean i think the through line is very obvious i'm just saying spirit away is like a closed system yeah because this bathhouse isn't like working towards like infinite growth like if it was a capitalistic bathhouse it would be like trying to like expand and like put bathhouses in like different locations in this world but yeah I get what you're saying though yeah I mean there's no like competitor bathhouse <laughs> do we do we know that for certain <laughs> like is this the one bathhouse in, in the entire universe or because like the the dad mentioned that there were like other abandoned type of like theme parks or whatever it was so, and like, how can all the spirits in the world or in Japan go to this one bathhouse? I fully went into it thinking like, this is one of potentially mm. many bathhouses. Oh, so, so they are in competition. <laughs> potentially. I mean, that's true because they work very hard to cater to their customers. So it might just be like, oh, we want to keep their business. So they come mm. back. I mean, otherwise, what's the point in pampering them? It doesn't matter, right? Yeah. 
it could just be any bathhouse. Yeah, but I think the location of the bathhouse is interesting. Like, why did Miyazaki choose a bathhouse and not another, like, a different workplace? Um, like a cafe. <laughs> <laughs> well, this this story is basically, like, exploitation of labor, right? Because all the spirits that work in this bathhouse have lost their real identity and are kind of, like, stuck here and... They don't know like who they are in real life and when you start working here the way you start is like you give your name to you baba and she gives you a new identity and like so if you like contrast that with a bathhouse a bathhouse is like a place where you go to clean yourself and it's like um you wash away like dirt and evil but then behind the scenes like this whole bathhouse is like operating on a system of like exploitation and like a little mermaid situation like you're signing off like a part of yourself i just realized this whole podcast episode is like a hour-long version of that mike wazowski meme about communism you know what i'm talking about no. <laughs> where they're like monsters inc is actually about communism because it's about exploiting children's like screams for powering an industry of <laughs> interesting i'll find it later i've never seen that me- meme but yeah well okay so that's that's what i thought but i think um people thought it was about sex work because i think people got stuck in this like bathhouse theory and like but i don't think people know what an onsen is no but people know that in the edo period bathhouse used to mean like where sex work happens. Miyazaki has clearly said it's not about sex work, like, specifically. I mean, you can interpret a movie however you feel like. It doesn't have yeah. to. I no, mean, you cannot. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm saying, like, you physically can. I don't think you should. Um, one thing that I do like about him is that he doesn't try to make movies for Americans. <laughs> I mean, he's very popular abroad now, and, I mean, if you say Miyazaki, like, people know who you're talking about. But... Spirited Away is not meant for American audiences to understand and like I never (laughs) got that impression from that because I've grown up here and I know what an onsen is like even if you're going by a traditional version of a bathhouse or even like a contemporary bathhouse like sex work still happens in bathhouses here I mean the movie's for kids and if you're trying to read too much into it, like, you're the weird one, I would say. <laughs> yeah, so this theory definitely did not start out in Japan. It probably started out in, like, America or something. Also, I feel like it, whether or not you think it's about sex work, at the end of the day, you still get to the same conclusion of, like, work is bad and these people yeah. are being yeah. exploited. So, like, I don't know, like, yes, there's that, like, additional cultural context, but, like, Sex work is just a form of work, so why not just make the commentary about work in a general sense? Like, no need to inject. Yeah, I agree that you do end up in the same conclusion, that it's about work and exploitation. The other part of this is, like, it's about identity, right? It's also about, like, losing your identity in in this sort of system or, like, a world where your basic personality is based on what you consume and stuff. I think... That's what it used to be in, like, the 80s and the 90s. Who you were was was based on, like, what new expensive thing you were able to buy and how this kind of, like, corrupts who you are as a person. Yeah, I I agree. And, like, I feel like that relates to kind of Chihiro's interactions with No-Face where Mm -hmm. he, like, offers her money and she's like, I don't want this. And, like, his reaction is what do you mean? Like, everyone wants money. And so I feel like Mm -hmm. it helps establish that in this world. And our world, so much of it is centered around like, wealth and like, 
consumption and just like you said working to the point where you kind of lose your identity or you're not able to have your identity because it's actively I don't know if minimize is the right word but like it's to like Yubaba's advantage that like people don't know their name or like they're just one of many I think people a lot of people who see this movie like no face is the one thing that really confuses them a lot. Like they really don't know what no face is about. And, like, I agree. What, what it's trying, right? I'm confused. <laughs> it's it is confusing, yeah. And but I think no face is the example of what happens when people enter this capitalistic system without like knowing what it's all about, right? Or like someone who hasn't experienced that that level of exploitation and like that kind of system where it's all based on like consumerism because no face as itself kind of doesn't really have an identity other than like a ghost that doesn't say anything like that's why his name is no face like Kawamashi like he doesn't have an identity but when he goes inside the bathhouse he takes the identity of the things that he consumes like literally like he eats the frog and then he talks as the frog right and so I think that's what that's what this movie is trying to say is that when you're identities based on like consume what, what you consume it's not a very healthy or like it's not very good um no face only becomes toxic when he's in the bathhouse right and he'll pay money and like people are happy with that inside the bathhouse but then when Chihiro is like when he offers money to Chihiro she's like I don't want that because she's not looking for a relationship based on exchange of goods and services she's looking to save Haku as her friend and then so that's why I think Chihiro, when she escapes the bathhouse, she's like, we need, we have to get No Face out of the bathhouse. Like, he's the way he is right now because he's inside the bathhouse. And so once he goes outside the bathhouse, he's no longer this toxic being because he he's outside that environment. Yeah, because like when he first enters the bathhouse, we don't know what he is when he enters. And like for all mm-hmm. the other people that are at the bathhouse, like, you know, like what type of spirit they are, give a sense of like who they are, but like... Yeah, with like no face, we don't know anything about him. And, and so he comes in and can really like take on kind of the mm. the environment that he's in. Yeah, it kind of represents the society that Japanese people live in. Like I've seen like tweets in Japanese that are like talking about their workplace and like the people that they work with. And like I saw this tweet one time that was about like their friend who like works in a really, really toxic environment and like as a friend they know them as like a really nice person but once they started working at this really toxic environment like they themselves also became toxic and like it was only after when they left this workplace that they kind of reverted back to their old self yeah don't be a dick at the office is what we have learned from this movie join a union i think all the bathhouse workers should have unionized against yubaba Spirited Away 2, Electric (laughs) Boogaloo. (laughs) Yeah, I think it kind of touches on like how this world or like this system kind of corrupts you as a person, but also like the relationships that you form with other people. Um, Because in the bathhouse, most of the relationships, it's a relationship based on like exchange of goods and services. So a lot of you have a lot of characters saying like, I'll do this for you if you do this for me. Like, even the little soot ball characters with Kamaji, they're, like, working for, like, the kompeto, you know? They're getting the little confectionaries out of their, <laughs> out of their work. 
I think that's why the relationship between、um, Chihiro and Haku is so significant and genuine because it's like they're not really doing things based on like what they would get out of each other. It's more like a they're like helping each other because they care for each other. And also like the the big baby, what's his face? A bow? Boya.、Um, yeah. Okay. Ibaba's son. Like his. Can someone explain that to me? What do you mean? Like I feel like I get a lot of the movie, but then I still don't understand the point of the baby. Oh, the baby! So yeah, you know how his nursery is like filled with toys and like a lot of material stuff. Yeah, of course. Like Yubaba loves her son, but like the way she shows that is through like material stuff. And I think Miyazaki saying like this kind of、uh, relationship based on materials doesn't really work because in the end. Yubaba is unable to like recognize her son when he's turned into like a mouse. Okay, yeah, no, that baby also really like scared me as a child. Everything in this movie is terrifying. It really is. I think the juxtaposition between the Western aesthetics of Yubaba's house or、mm-hmm. her office are interesting compared to the very traditional、mm-hmm. Japanese look of. The rest、mm-hmm. of the area.、Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's because Miyazaki like hates Western culture or whatever. I mean, if he does, I'm down. But <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's just like Western excess and the play pen looks like a fucking ball. Actually, I would love that in my house with the little <laughs> sun and moon. Yeah, that light thing is cute. Yeah, I don't know what to make of that, but I just found that contrast really interesting. This is something that the people on Reddit. <laughs> Noticed as well, but I guess the like you said the contrast between like Yubaba's like very Western or like European aesthetic compared to the rest of the bathhouse is kind of making a distinction that it's not just consumerism necessarily, but like Western consumerism or like capitalism and like greed and excess being. A characteristic of the West, even though, as you were saying, is like that's not true because it's also like a very uniquely like Japanese film in that regard as well. So yeah, I don't know if it's like specifically Western because Japan did go through that kind of consumerism also, like in the in the eighties. Like I just thought he was he was like responding to the economic boom period because he lives in Japan and that's probably what he saw. At that time, I mean, I think it is supposed to be a comparison to Western, at minimum, Western aesthetics and opulence. Obviously, the aesthetics are not contemporary,、mm-hmm. but I think overall, the movie is like a rejection of consumerism and excess in the sense that all of his movies are kind of environmental leaning to begin with. This is lesser so than some of his other ones, like、mm-hmm. Naoshika or. Is that the one I'm thinking of with the bugs? That's Nausicaa, right? Yeah, Nausicaa. Yeah. yeah, I don't like that one.、Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's so boring.、Uh, Nausicaa or Mononoke. If you don't like bugs, that one is like that movie is all bugs. <laughs> I watched it in the cinema and I was like, "Is something gonna happen?" And it it was like two hours of just bugs. I happen to know people who really like bugs. So as a as a person who likes bugs, I like that movie a lot. Yeah, yeah, but environmentalism does show up in this movie though with the. Of our spirit being like polluted, yeah. And if you look at the picture, like you can see the thing that comes out of him is like a bicycle, like TV, the stuff that yeah, people yeah. Bought, bought presumably and like threw away. Yeah, and then there's also that one line where Chihiro's talking to Haku, and she's like, 
talking about how the river that she used to play in was like filled in or whatever and like oh, yeah. replaced by apartments. Mm-hmm. So that kind of gets back at it as well. Maybe the only ideal boyfriend is a river spirit boyfriend. <laughs> I don't know. He's not her boyfriend. They say boyfriend in the movie. We don't even know if he's a boy. The only time we know of his gender is because Zaniba says to Chihiro, oh, your boyfriend is here. But that's the one line that hints at Haku's gender. And then Haku's like, no, I'm actually (laughs) non-binary. He's a river spirit. Like, do river spirits have gender? I don't know. If Haku is a spirit, like, doesn't that imply that they're old? Haku saved Chihiro like when she was like a child and it's not like they were also a child so like isn't there like a huge age gap? But also this the relationship between Chihiro and Haku is not like romantic love. Yeah that's what I'm saying. It feels like a very platonic situation. Yeah I think Zaniba just says boyfriend because that's what old people say. Yeah in the same way that Chihiro calls her grandma it's just a (laughs) it's just a cultural affectation not an actual designation of whether he is or is not a boy yeah that sounds about right okay well i guess we really are screwed then there are no good boys out there no good boys yeah (laughs) haku canceled (laughs) haku is over party haku is over party I think it is interesting, though, that so many of the characters, the, like, spirit characters are, like, interpreted or implied to be, like, this is a boy spirit. Are spirits, like, gendered usually, like, in culture? I mean, they're supposed to be Shinto spirits. Do they have genders? Um, I don't think they have genders so specifically in the way that, like, Greek gods have genders. But I'm not really sure. (laughs) Is there like a masculine energy associated with some but not others? Oh yeah, I'm sure there are, yeah. I don't know about spirits, but there are a lot of like gendered yokai uh, and like mythical creatures. Like the Rokurokubi is specifically supposed to be a woman in like a yukata like dress and like she like tricks you and then you discover that she has a really long neck but yeah that one is like specifically a woman that's like a that's like a 1600s catfish <laughs> you like go out with someone and then it turns out they have a really long neck <laughs> hey some people yeah. just have long necks like <laughs> let them live <laughs> i'm sorry for offending the population of people with seven foot long necks <laughs> already canceled on the first episode <laughs> Yes, I think there are some specific characters that have gendered, but a lot of them are not. Their gender is not mentioned. It's not a big part of their identity, I feel like. Oh, well, speaking of gender, this is something I think about a lot with regard to Miyazaki. But Mm -hmm. I find it really interesting that, especially for a filmmaker who's been working like a really long time, uh, all of Miyazaki's protagonists are, for the most part, women, and they're pretty... Hashtag girl boss inspired. Yeah. Um, which I find, always found really interesting because Japan is infamously a very sexist society. And, you know, mm-hmm. every year you check the news and we've dropped another couple spots <laughs> in our, I think we're like 130th globally or something, yeah. something awful in terms of gender equity, even though we're a very wealthy country and very industrialized. But 
Yeah, I don't know where that comes from because I don't like Miyazaki personally. I think he's kind of a dick. Oh, he's awful. Yeah. It's not like hidden in like his documentaries that like he like yells at people straight up and like kind of like terrifies is like the people who that work under him and like he's really mean (laughs) this is why i really hate those memes those twitter memes that keep going around where people are like oh it's so relatable that miyazaki is really grumpy and tired and yeah he's like this cute old grandpa and i'm like no he's an asshole yeah (laughs) i mean this isn't to defend him in any way but he's like a typical japanese boss like i don't think his abuse is probably any worse than A lot of people I know personally, but that doesn't justify being a dick and underpaying your employees. Someone sent me a post about hiring for new animators Mm. at Ghibli, and I was shocked to find out that they were paid, you know, 25 mon a month, which... Mm. That's like the standard pay, though, for... For entry-level employees. entry-level working. I think it's even lower, probably for animation. Like, this is just starting to become more well-known but like like the animation industry in japan is like dying because people are not being paid enough and like they're working so long and like but getting paid so little but at the same time like all these streaming services like netflix and then a lot of tv um stations are like wanting to produce more and more and more animation because it's, it's super popular not only domestically but also abroad i just found that particularly interesting because Mm-hmm. they're so successful so they really have no justification yeah. to pay people that little <laughs> i mean yeah in japan that doesn't seem to be a mitigating factor in literally anyone's salary because everyone i know gets paid roughly the same regardless of what company you work at but obviously what people should be getting paid is a livable wage dependent on working hours and you know even though there are laws that protect full-time employees here basically everyone flouts them creatives suffer more than maybe anyone else from that myth that you should be working toward the greater good of your project or whatever because it's art related like who cares you know I would rather see a shitty movie where everyone was paid really well and worked eight hours a day instead of a masterpiece and where people had mental health issues and died because they overworked themselves I don't (laughs) it's just not worth it no, yeah, it's really not worth it. Even if it is Ghibli and Miyazaki, like, you should be getting paid enough. <laughs> like, yeah, watch your own damn movie. Yeah, I was gonna say, it's, like, extremely ironic that you would make a movie, and, like, I don't, maybe it's, like, I made this movie, and I completely missed the point of it myself, and this mm-hmm, was, like, mm-hmm. unintentional self-awareness, but... Yeah, the other thing with this movie, too, is that I think Spirited Away has to do with, like, uh, working specifically because one of the Ghibli directors like died from overwork in 1998. Um, he was a director, Yoshifumi Kondo, who directed Whispers of Your Heart, Whispers of the Heart, and he died of overworking. That's like huge. Like this should be bigger news for like Ghibli fans, <laughs> but for some reason it's not talked about a lot when people talk about Ghibli. I feel like it's not talked about in general with movies. I don't think it's a Ghibli only phenomenon. Yeah. And I- I was thinking about this recently because, I mean, I follow a lot of gaming people on Twitter, but all the gaming people I follow talk a lot about crunch, and it seems to be like a conversation that is happening amongst game fans. I mean, I'm sure it's still very much in the minority, like people on Twitter versus, you know, the millions, hundreds of millions of people who buy game consoles and games Mm -hmm. every day. They're not 
remotely comparable, but in spaces where people are having discussions about cultural production, it's great and also very shocking to me that gaming is the one where people are having these talks. It is not happening for movies or TV. I mean, in the very limited sense of like, hashtag me too, it is happening. But, you know, what I feel about me too is that the result has been more uh, canceling. I, I see that with heavy quotes of like five or 10 bad actors, but not really doing anything systemic mm. and not solving any of the more broader abuses that happen from working in the industry at all. Yeah, but what I want to say is like, it's not talked about it, even though someone like died, like it resulted in a death. Oh, but that happens all the time. No, no, no. But people don't know that Ghibli is one of the companies that killed someone. People don't talk about that when they talk about Ghibli at all. I definitely think that's more of a widespread thing, not a Ghibli exclusive thing. I think you told me that Kondo died because Mm -hmm. of Karoshi, but it doesn't surprise me that people haven't brought it up because I have a couple co-workers who worked on the most recent Blade Runner movie, and I was looking at their Wikipedia page or something, and it said that someone died on set. My God. But it's a fairly common occurrence. I mean, not that it happens on every movie set, but it doesn't happen infrequently enough, in my opinion. I think people would be really surprised to hear just how regularly it happens in the film and TV industry. Yeah, because even if people aren't dying, they're like still working to that level. Yeah. I was going to say, I guess with film and like set-related deaths, um, do you think like part of the reason why it doesn't get discussed is people kind of make the assumption that like, oh, if someone passed away while working on a film or TV show, it was a stunt accident or kind of like a freak accident as opposed to people were taking shortcuts with like safety or just like general overworking or it's people like overlook the fact that, you know, there were things that could have been done to prevent this. I think the problem is that the systems that make up any form of labor are always very hidden from people and it's in the advantage of companies to not make those Mm -hmm. very evident. I mean, Mm -hmm. I didn't know any of this until I started working on set, but, you know, the ways in which you could endanger yourself are theoretically supposed to be covered by safety protocols or whatever but a lot of the times they only exist to I mean they exist in the same way that like HR does which is to protect the company and the bottom line and what (laughs) I know (laughs) shocker um (laughs) uh so I've been on sets where there have been intense discussions about safety and keeping people from getting injured in situations that demand them if there's like a big stunt or something but you know, no one ever wants to talk about how overwork might contribute to dying. And I think statistically, it would be far more likely for someone to die, like go home in their car, crash their car and die, than die during a stunt because the stunts are the ones that people are really careful about. Mm. I think that stuff is a lot yeah. harder to for people to understand from the outside. Because when you watch like mm-hmm. a movie, you don't see any of that. The whole point is to keep labor hidden. Especially an animated movie where, like, you're just seeing pictures. You're not seeing, like, any actors or anything even. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like, too, with animated movies, like, you might know the, like, voice of a character or, like, who made it or, like, the studio who made it. But, like, unless you're, like, really into animated films, like, you wouldn't be able to name an animator or, like, name someone who worked on that movie So I feel like that just helps like obscure the conditions under which people are working to produce art. A lot of companies outsource their post-production and their 
animation these days. Because I think this there's like a practice now where if you have like background cells or something, you can just send them off to a different country and then like have very talented artists who work abroad and get paid cents on the dollar to just build them in instead of doing them at home, which is a terrible development in globalization. <laughs> um, but I think that happens more and more frequently these days. Just so ironic, <laughs> the whole movie. <laughs> at first, I was like, wow, what a, you know, like, interesting way to comment or, you know, make <laughs> observations about society yeah. and, like, work culture and what. And now I'm like, all of it, it was just like an accident. It's, like, hypocritical. Yeah. yeah, it was hypocritical or like even the least malicious. It's just ironic and not funny, but like it's interesting. I mean, in general, this is kind of why I find it hard to trust movies as a concept or like TV as a concept. <laughs> I mean, not to like be too tinfoil hatty or whatever, but they're all kind of like this. I don't think there's any industry in which labor isn't exploited. And I don't think that any movie that's ever been made up until this point at least on a um, you know, major film production company studio scale, has been done without labor that's been exploited in some way. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is kind of why I feel that culture can only do so much in terms of messaging, because you are kind of limited to just getting whatever lessons you can out of a movie and then just ignoring the ramifications for why that cultural product exists. Like if you, As soon as you dive anywhere below surface level, it becomes unpleasant. And I can see why people would want to avoid that. But I mean, you can if you want. I I just don't think it's for the best. I was gonna say, I'm like really good at not consuming culture. (laughs) (laughs) The solution is to just sit still and do nothing and photosynthesize. I also thought it was like, interesting how the movie ends. And then there's this whole idea kind of of like, did that really happen? Like, because they get back to the car and it's like dusty and whatnot while her parents like have no recollection. And so it's kind of like a, that happened. You can tell it really happened because her ponytail has that hair tie and, and sparkles. It's the purple one that Zaniba gave her. Oh, yeah. I don't think you were paying attention. Did you watch it on two times the speed? <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was like occupying one quarter of the screen. So it's like same thing, basically. I didn't realize the hair tie thing until I watched it in cinemas. So I did not expect (laughs) you of all people to notice that when you were watching it. Whoa. You didn't. (laughs) Yeah, but not because I was watching at 2x speed. Oh, only because you were watching it minimized. (laughs) Yeah. Can we talk about that, though, one day? like Watching movies at two times the speed. No, 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 just, like, the whole distribution rights of, like, the Studio Ghibli movies and, like, how Mm. it's on HBO Max, like, free to stream, but, like, you can't even rent it on any other platform. Like, you have to purchase Mm. it. Oh, I think that's important because cultural accessibility is, like, a big pain in the butthole and it is really annoying that all of these streaming services have just monopolized the way we're able to preserve and hold on to, I don't want to say like our own culture, but having DVDs and VHS tapes was a way for you to have ownership of something you wanted to watch. But now with streaming, you don't necessarily have that anymore. And we can get into this when we talk about BTS. I have a lot of thoughts about this. (laughs) We can talk about Weverse. But um, yeah, I think it's a big problem because if you don't have a 
actual copy of a movie or a TV show, the streaming service can just change it willy-nilly. Because, I mean, Disney does this all the time where they, you know, try to upgrade their animation and then they make it mm-hmm. look shitty. But if you don't have access to a copy of it, then you'll just have to watch the ugly version for the rest of your life. This is what happened to Sailor Moon, where, like, I think the original company that got the distribution rights to the U.S., like, they, like, censored a bunch of stuff. And then it was only, like, somewhat recently, I think, that this new company had the distribution rights, and then they, like, reverted it back to the original. Hmm. I mean, if you watch all of your movies that only take up a quarter of your screen or you watch it on three times the speed, this is probably not something that really matters to you anyway, but (laughs) if you are not one of those Um, people... (laughs) It does matter to me. Like, (laughs) watching it faster does not change the content. It changes the pace by two times the speed. (laughs) I don't watch movies on two times speed. I watch, like, cooking videos and, like, (laughs) video essays on double speed where people speak slowly. I would never want to ruin the pacing that someone thought of, you know? Uh, I'm pretty sure when Netflix announced that they were adding two times the speed, you texted me saying, this is so exciting for me personally. (laughs) The one thing I did want to say, though, was, like, this movie wouldn't have happened if the, like, dad just followed the GPS. He insisted on going, like, off-road. He was like, I have four-wheel drive! Yeah, and, like, refused to, like, (laughs) check a map, even though the wife was like, this doesn't look right. So, men ruin everything, as always. (laughs) Oh, 100% my parents would do exactly the same thing if we were just driving around and then we just got distracted. They'd be like, oh, look at this house! And then I I would reluctantly have to follow them into some overgrown path. I don't think they would eat people's food without paying but i definitely think Mm. we would get to the point where we would get lost yeah and then i would also be spirited away (laughs) people can't see but everyone everyone's exchanging a finger (laughs) but yeah no i feel like the universal experience of men and dads and whatever is like not following directions or asking for directions yeah the moral of the story is don't let dad's drive (laughs) yeah okay anything else about spirit away um i don't have anything else to say other than like i still like spirited away even though the work practices of ghibli and miyazaki is questionable so i think like i mean this whole podcast is kind of like being critical of things we like which is possible yeah like if i didn't like spirited away i wouldn't have anything interesting to say about it no i'm i think we're all really looking forward to what's to come and all the things that we can complain about um so thank you everyone who tuned in um and we'll be back next time to talk about bts most likely yay yay tune in next week when we discover stephanie's bias in bts yeah so did we end the episode i think everyone just say bye 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 (laughs) 